This is Brett. And this is Sean. And this is Bonus BS. Bonus BS, a supplemental show to Gaming and BS podcast where we cover interviews and other such topics not found in our weekly episodes. Enjoy. Bonus BS, episode 8. Chris Perkins from Wizards of the Coast at GameholeCon 2015. So I'm Chris Perkins. I work at Wizards of the Coast and have for almost 20 years now. Um, I know. Shocking. And um, my job has changed considerably over those 20 years. When I first came to Wizards, I was the editor of Dungeon Magazine. Uh, and I graduated from there to also work on Dragon and then Star Wars magazines. And then after the Star Wars magazines, I went down to the R&D team where I've been ever since, serving a variety of roles from creative director, uh, game designer, writer, editor, developer. Uh, my current job title is uh, principal designer. What that really means is I'm in charge of the story of D&D, uh, the D&D stories that we tell. And um, our biggest, in addition to the launch of 5th edition, which has been enormously successful to us critically and, uh, and in terms of just people playing the game and enjoying it, and they seem to like what was done, uh, the... Um, my job and the job of our team going forward is to try to make sure that anything that we do that ties to D&D is firmly rooted in story first. If we don't have a story to tell, we're not going to release any product to support it. Uh, the gone are the days um, in third and fourth edition when we were bound by the model of having to release a book a month or two books a month or three books a month. We have no commitment or desire to do that going forward. And part of that is just driven by business realities. Part of it is driven by our knowledge of certain facts that we've obtained through um, surveys, through talking to people at shows, that there is kind of a certain amount of material that people can actually absorb before the stuff you that we're releasing no longer has any value and is no longer actually serving anybody. Um, a lot of third edition products, I'm sure, and fourth edition products, I'm sure, that maybe you've bought or your friends have bought, are sitting on shelves having never been used um, or used precious little. Uh, we don't sell products so that 5% of our audience can use 5% of it. We're now trying to sell products that... 100% of our audience might use, and they'll use all of it. The perceived value of D&D goes up. People are actually having common shared experiences that they can talk about at cons with their friends, and our stories actually get out there. The way in the olden days when you had the early adventures that TSR put out, everybody played Tomb of Horrors, and everybody played Keep on the Borderlands, and everybody played Temple of Elemental Evil, and those stories have transcended the game experience to the point now where people can come to a convention and a 13-year-old and a 40-year-old and a 65-year-old can all talk about Tomb of Horrors and know what they're all talking about. They've all had some Tomb of Horrors experience. And that's kind of where my head is at currently in thinking about stories going forward, is coming up with story ideas that hopefully... Years from now, people will say, I went through that adventure, and boy, that was fun, and we all died, and I 
and I want to play again next time our group gets together. Our first story that we launched with 5th edition was Tyranny of Dragons, and we uh, partnered with a number of different companies to tell that story. Uh, we partnered with Wolfgang Bauer's company, Kobold Press, to do a, a, a pair of TRPG products. We partnered with Gale Force 9. We partnered with WizKids. We partnered with our uh, folks, uh, Cryptic, the company that produces the Neverwinter MMO. We set up all these partners to tell that story. And that went on for about six months. And then uh, we switched to Elemental Evil, which was an attempt to take a classic Greyhawk-based tale and see if we can't tell a similar tale in the Forgotten Realms, essentially with a lot of the same tropes, the, uh, and actually showcasing things that never existed in the original Temple of Elemental Evil adventure, because they didn't exist and were not conceived of at that time, like the Princes of Elemental Evil. Uh, after the Elemental Evil story, our third story and current story is Rage of Demons. Um, how many of you have had some contact with the Rage of Demons storyline? Be it in the Neverwinter MMO or uh, through WizKids minis or through the TRPG adventure that we produced with Green Ronin. Okay, a few of you. This story, uh, while nominally set in the realms, is actually largely based in the Underdark, which means that if your campaign world has an Underdark, it's not too hard to transplant a lot of that story to that world. It's very convenient that way. And the Rage of Demons story was based on... It originated when we found out that uh, Bob had two novels that he was going to write that had to do with Dritzto Worden in the Underdark. And we thought, wouldn't it be fun if we had the novels as bookends to this story? One novel to kick the story off and one to kind of help tie things up. And what story would we tell in the Underdark, which we hadn't visited for a little while. Um, we also wanted to go to the Nostalgia Well again, like we did with Elemental Evil, and find villains who had existed in the game since the dawn of the game. And so we went back to the original Monster Manual, and we grabbed Demogorgon, and Orcus, and Yinoku, and um, who's the other one in that book? Dweeblex. And we went to the Monster Manual 2, and we grabbed Frazer Blue and Grazt, and I think they were the only two in that book that we grabbed. Anyway, we took all the demon lords that we liked, and that we could find, and that fit into the story, and we created this story about what happens if an archwizard who lives in the Underdark casts a spell, and through Loth's machinations, the spell sets into motion a series of events by which all of the demon lords of the Abyss are suddenly transplanted into the Underdark. And how does, how does Dweeblex feel when he is shunted from his bubbling, frothing, slime-infested layer of the Abyss and deposited into the Underdark? He'd actually feel pretty much at home because there are oozes and slimes everywhere. Zagatmoy, same deal. She, lives, she shares her abyssal plane with Dweeblex. Here's a whole new wondrous world full of fungi forests and mushrooms. And hey, there's a gigantic fungus that lives over there. I think we're going to marry that. Uh, she's got her whole, her whole uh, domain down there, and she seems pretty well adjusted. But what about guys like Demogorgon? He can't be too happy about being down in the Underdark. 
what's his story? What's, what's Orcus's story? Orcus's story is kind of weird. When he shows up in the Underdark, he arrives near an, a Mind Flayer enclave. That can't be good. Um, he finds that the Elder Brain there has just died, and so he brings it back to life. Or rather, he turns it into an undead Elder Brain, which then turns all the Mind Flayers into undead Mind Flayers, and things kind of go downhill from there. Uh, it's a very big story. It's a very big, ambitious story, um, but we think it has the villains, the nostalgia beats, the Underdark is sort of painted as an Alice in Wonderland type environment of whimsy and wonder and insanity. And everybody's going insane because all the demon lords are around. Uh, we felt that was a nice big story to take us into our third year. So the question then becomes, where do our stories go next? And that's kind of what this seminar is really about. So that was all preface, just to sort of talk about the future. And while I can't divulge a lot of specific details about the stories we aim to tell, I can at least give you a sense of what we're going for. So uh, with the launch of 5th edition, anybody who has seen the core rule books, and by the way, how many of you have the core rule books for 5th edition at this point? Uh, you'll, you'll notice as you look through the books that they're very multiversal in their approach or philosophy. That is to say that we pulled stuff and to put into those books from all the different campaign settings and worlds that had been created, or at least a great number of them. Uh, so, yes, there is Forgotten Realms material, but there's also Dragonlance material. Lord Soth, for instance, he's mentioned and you know, appears in the Monster Manual. Strahd von Zarovich, he's the great vampire from Ravenloft. He is also figures prominently in the Monster Manual. Modrons, Slotty. Uh, the, the planar uh, cosmologies that have existed in various editions are now described in the DMG. Um, all of these different elements are contained there so that in future stories, we don't have to limit ourselves to one world. And so while tyranny of dragons and elemental evil and rage of demons have all fundamentally been forgotten realms based, one of the things we are going to be doing in the future is looking out at some of our other worlds. And uh, yeah, that doesn't mean we won't come back to the realms or have adventures that actually visit multiple different locations, start in one place and end in another. Um, that is also in keeping with tradition. Uh, we, there's plenty of evidence in past editions of the game where you start in one world and end in another. And in fact, if you go all the way back to earliest days of Dragon Magazine, there's even evidence that sometimes uh, you might wind up in Ed Greenwood's kitchen or um, other weird places like uh, London, <laughs> Victorian age London. Uh, who knows? Our goal with this, so one of our goals with the stories going forward is to go beyond Forgotten Realms, <coughs> safe to say. The other thing that we're driving to with our stories is to, whenever possible, draw upon the past. Key elements from the history of the game that have not seen a lot of attention lately. We did that with the fifth edition books, and that's sort of thematic of what we're going to continue to do going forward. So whenever we sit down to think about a new story, one of the first things we do is we open up a bunch of old books, and we see what's there. Oh, there's Asmodeus. We haven't used him in a while. Maybe we'll use him in a future story. Or there's this other thing. Modrons. We haven't used Modrons in a while. Maybe there's a way, maybe there's a story we can tell around them. Oh, maybe not. Who knows? But we'll talk about it. Uh, finding things in the past that we can leverage in the future so that we can introduce new gamers to these old ideas 
and also just keep them alive and let people know that, hey, D&D is still about these things. These elements are still part of the game. They will always be part of the game. And if we can come up with a cool story to use them, you bet we will. The third thing that we aim to do with our stories going forward is to make sure that every story feels different thematically and in terms of mood and atmosphere from the ones that preceded it and hopefully the ones that will follow it so that we're not in an underdark rut for three years or we're not in super edgy D&D mode for three years. We want to balance the mood of each story so that it really stands out on its own. So Tyranny of Dragons was all about dragons. They seemed like the best threat to introduce going out with the launch of fifth edition. And Tiamat was a great central villain to kind of unite the evil dragons around. So she was our fundamental threat. And of course, she traces her origins back to first edition and the old D&D cartoon, um, which, by the way, is very, very weird to watch now. <laughs> I still like it, which is more than I can say about a lot of cartoons that I watched back when I was a kid. Um, but you start to pick it apart in ways that, yeah, it's just not fair to the cartoon. Um, and poor Avenger, he just can't win to save his life. Um, sadly, we won't be doing any stories around the D&D cartoon. Um, and that's because we don't own the characters. CBS does, or one of its affiliates, I don't remember which. So the, our, the third thing, apart from nostalgia and apart from visiting other worlds, the third thing is really to make sure every story stands on its own and feels like a unique entity and feels different from everything that's come before. So the story that follows Rage of Demons is not going to be anywhere near the Underdark, uh, and it's going to have its own feel, its own flavor, its own atmosphere, its own thing. The story that follows that is going to be very different. Uh, it allows us to do things like this Prince, uh, Princes of the Apocalypse and the Elemental Evil story was very dungeon-driven. It was a dungeon-based story. You went through a lot of, you spent a lot of time in dungeons in that story, just like you did in Temple of Elemental Evil, the original Elemental Evil story. It was appropriate for the type of story we were trying to tell. In the future, we want to maybe do intrigue. What, what story would we have to tell in D&D that is fundamentally an intrigue story? Or um, uh, would it be like city-based? Would it be planar-based? where you're basically on some sort of planar hunt for something. Um, and then the story, maybe the story after that is, uh, is what? Horror. Horror. Or, or something more uh, lighthearted and, and, and flaky or uh, a, little off, a little off track or like Eberron, a little bit more steampunkish Victorian... <clears throat> Um, pulpy, thank you. The words escape me. How about you do this, and I'll just sit, <laughs> I'll just sit and listen to you for a while. You're much better at this than I am. Uh, <laughs> so those are the three things which really sort of driving the story forward. Again, just change, making sure every story stands has a different feel, flavor, making sure that we get to visit some of our other worlds, and making sure that we're always going back to the source material and picking the best things out of the past and bringing them forward for everybody to enjoy. Now, the people who in Wizards of the Coast work on the story team, actually a very small group of us. I don't know whether you know this or not, but the size of the D&D team at Wizards has changed over the years. I've been there since the TSR acquisition. I was actually hired to work at TSR and never got a chance to because everything collapsed at that moment. 
And I remember Pierce Waters, who hired me, he was in charge of this, he was the circulation director at TSR, said, don't come to Lake Geneva. There's nobody there anymore. Keep going out west. Um, that's where you'll be actually starting. Um, but when we first came to Wizards of the Coast with all the TSR folks, the D&D team numbered just under 50 people. And they were supporting a number of different campaign settings that had held over from second edition. There was a Dragonlance team. There was a Forgotten Realms team. There was a Greyhawk team. Every world had, still had its own team. Over the years, that has changed and metamorphosized. Now there isn't dedicated teams to worlds because there just aren't that many worlds that are actively supported anymore. Uh, and so our team now numbers 15. Uh, and uh, not only do we work on TRPG stuff, uh, but we also uh, support our novelists. We also uh, provide support to our business partners working on digital games, uh, miniatures, and game accessories, for lack of a better term. And we've also got part of our team whose brain space is dedicated to coming up with new ideas, new ways to get D&D out in the world. Loot Crate partnerships, for instance. Very, very beneficial for us um, because they give us enormous exposure. Conventions. For instance, there's a bunch of owlbears sitting outside. That does, that does great things for D&D, &D, uh, things that we can't even begin to estimate. Um, it's al it was always my dream to be able to fly to Gen Con and see in the airplane seats across from me you know, a nine-year-old girl with her backpack full of game product and a little stuffed owlbear tied onto her backpack with all of her dice inside of it or something. Um, this comes about as close to realizing that dream as possible of seeing new gamers brought into this hobby that is now over 40 years old. And uh, my, my story team consists of me. I have an art director named Richard Witters, who I stole from the Magic team, who's brilliant um, and loves D&D more than Magic. Uh, and I've got a story writer named Adam Lee, who I also stole from Magic. He helped create... Uh, I don't know if you know these magic sets, but Ravnica and Innistrad. Uh, and so I grabbed him for obvious reasons, if you know those sets at all. Uh, and uh, we've got a, we just hire, we're in the process of hiring a new concept artist so that they can draw any sort of doodles that we need to give to our partners and friends. And then uh, beyond that, uh, I've just got the rest of the D&D team, the other... 13 or 12 odd people who work on other things that I can go and bug. And then I've got the community. And the ways that we listen to the community are things like this. This room of people may, in some small or enormous fashion, shape a future D&D story simply by telling me the things that you like the things that you hate, the things that you think we've done well so far, the things that you think we've missed, and the anecdotal stories of your own campaigns and things that you love. Um, I spoke to a young fellow yesterday uh, named Ben, um, who is a very keen gamer from Iowa. He taught me a magic trick with a card, which I won't repeat here. Um, and uh, he was telling me a little bit about his campaigns and his love of history. And... Uh, what was that? Oh, okay. Uh, and his love of history and uh, talking about, you know, 
maybe we should do some sort of historical campaign sometime. It occurred to me at the end of that conversation that maybe there's something to do with Vikings or with like a, a, a Roman Empire type situation um, or Japanese samurai. Uh, who knows? Possibilities are endless, but it got me thinking. Just that one conversation with that one person from Iowa who taught me a magic trick. Uh, so um, I'm happy to talk more about Wizards of the Coast, D&D, &D, the stories that we've released, I, thoughts about things we might do in the future without committing one way or the other. The only thing I can't talk to you about are specific product release dates, specific stories that we actually are working on presently, and at this time we are working on four. Um, we are wrapping up the stories that we got two stories to tell in next year, and then we got two more stories in fairly developed states at this point. Um, uh, which, and we don't necessarily know when they're even going to appear yet. So with that, I open the floor to questions. Any questions about D&D &D stories and whatnot? Yes, sir. Oh, microphone. You've talked a lot about the, the stories that have been released thus far, and in, in my mind, they're more campaigns. You, know, you start at a very low level and you progress to a very high level. Classic first edition modules were very, very small very, very light. Anybody could pick them up and, and run them. Is there any thought of doing more of that? Is that not something that has been well received in the past or maybe something that uh, you're investigating? Uh, with regard to the shorter, sort of shorter modular adventures, um, we are doing that, but we're doing it now through Adventurers League. So our shorter module adventures are all sort of adventure league adventures. You can play many of them here. Uh, you can also download them. Uh, because uh, we've discovered that, uh, because, because now we've, uh, we're using our, our stories are these experiences that are meant to kind of last for a period of time. Uh, our typical stories usually have a marketing plan associated with them that runs about four to six months. Um, we've discovered that that's actually good for us because it gives enough people the chance to discover it and experience it and then talk about it before they get taken off on the new thing. And part of the goal with the stories is to bring people together and give them common experiences. And the, sh the shorter, more modular things tend to be fleeting and we don't get that resonance over time. That doesn't mean that we don't think they're important, and that's why we have them in our Adventurers League. The other challenge with them is uh, when it comes to actually selling modules, their presence on the shelf is significantly less. When they're shelved in, they don't have spines, they disappear, they get lost more quickly. Uh, the stores that buy them don't give them as much credence or as much weight. Um, when, whereas when we release a bigger book or a box or something that has a little bit of oomph behind it, it tends to get the stores and the distributors more excited, and it tends to give us a, a bigger build-up. Uh, people get more energized, they start saving money for it, uh, they know that they won't have to buy six things from us, they can just buy one, and uh, it means that we can release fewer products and just focus more attention on them. And a lot of that is driven, I think, by kind of like a World of Warcraft model. You could imagine Blizzard releasing, releasing six expansions a year. They don't. 
Why not? Right. They want people to actually take the time to experience it. They also want the release to go out and have some weight to it. They want to release a, release a mammoth, not a bunch of mice, um, because that mammoth is going to get a lot of attention for them. And so they would rather wait for a year or two, create something fairly monumental, and then put it out there and give people a good, generous time to absorb the content, and then talk about it, tear it to pieces, get feedback on it, before they then set their foot out and do another one. And that's kind of what we're doing with these stories. Um, the feedback loop is an important element I forgot to mention. It was part and parcel of fifth edition. Fifth edition would not have succeeded without it, I think. Um, the idea that you need to take the time to give people the chance to actually experience it and tell you what their experiences were in order to inform future product. These bigger stories let us do that. By the same token, we have game groups out there that are avidly consuming content. Not all of them. Some game groups only meet once a month or once every three months, depending on lifestyles. But some groups are avidly consuming content, so we need these modules out there for them to consume them. To keep their groups together, to keep their stories moving forward. And so the Adventurers League games were really designed to do that. That whole community is designed to support that avid gaming group thing. On top of that, we know that not only do we have classic D&D, the role-playing game, but we're also experimenting with our digital partners to give you D&D light experiences. And it's better for them, they have told us, it's better for them to tie their product and their marketing efforts into a big story than into something small and fleeting. So uh, N-Space with uh, Sword Coast Legends, Cryptic with Neverwinter, uh, previously and currently, Turbine with DDO. Uh, they all want a bigger story that they can sink their teeth into, take a bite out of, and then take that bite and develop on their own. It's just better with the bigger stories than with the modules to do that. Very long-winded answer to your question. Uh, at this panel last year, you you teased us with that, that rage what Rage of Demons ended up becoming was an Alice in Wonderland-like tale. You were so you didn't give anything away, but it, it really got my juices flowing. Like, what is that going to look like? It's obviously very appropriate that you're wearing the <laughs> you're the Mad Hatter's hat right now. Yes. So my my question to you is, can you give us a kind of tease as to what? Once again, no specifics, but what is it that you're going for with the next story that's going to be different, as you mentioned before, as much as you can. Um, that's, that's a tough one to answer. Um, in, in, to a certain extent, obtusely, I have kind of already answered it with the three things I called attention to. One could speculate, based on the, what I've told you, uh, what might happen. Um, uh, to give you some of the ideas, I do tease things. Um, let, me, let me think if I, can, if I can give you any information about the other one without actually giving it away. Um, We do have an upcoming story that does go back to a past adventure. Um, uh, and uh, is kind of... Um... <laughs> yeah. Promise we won't tell. This isn't being recorded, don't worry. Doesn't... Doesn't feature dragons, so it won't be anything from the Dragonlance saga. 
and uh, let me think. Um, I think it's safe to say, uh, if you look at the things we haven't played with yet, that are fairly intrinsic to D&D. Like, just somebody just belt out a D&D monster. Beholder. Beholder, okay. Well, they play an important, they actually are fairly prominent in Rage of Demons. In fact, out of the Abyss, the Rage of Demons adventure has three of them. Um, uh, so we probably won't be doing anything with them again soon. Anybody want to belt out another monster? Vampire. Vampire. By which we mean Gith Yankee. Now, uh, just not to not to shunt away from the vampire forever. I'll come back to the vampire for a second. But you mentioned Gith Yankee, um, which were created by uh, Charlie Strauss, the, uh, uh, who's now gone on to be quite a preeminent and wonderful author. He also created the Slotty, by the way. Um, bit of useless trivia, uh, but um, we had an uh, I had an interesting conversation at the office with Matt Cernet, uh, who's our sort sort of lore guy at at Wizards. He basically looks at all of our product to make sure that we're not saying anything that's not true in the world in which they're set. Um, and we had a long conversation about Gith Yankee because they're really fascinating, well-developed creatures who, in order to mate and have children, they have to leave their home plane because the astral plane, you don't age. And so you can't have children there. So they set up these creches, these little remote hideaways in the material plane to have their children, raise them, train them to be merciless killers, and then bring them back to the astral plane. That is an interesting nugget. We can do something cool with that. I don't know what it is yet, but I hope we can do something cool with that. The vampire is a, has been around in D&D. It's not a unique D&D monster by any stretch. Um, but we would be remiss if we didn't do something with vampires at some point. Uh, you can almost assure you that we will, we will get around to doing that. Um, uh, certainly gothic. Uh, the, and bringing in uh, uh, Adam Lee, who worked on Innistrad, uh, Gothic is, and Victoria, and that sort of that sort of feel, I think, is ripe for plunder. It never seems to go out of fashion. Um, the question is all about timing. When is the best time to do it? Uh, when is it going to surprise and delight the most people? That's another thing about our stories: is we don't want to be predictable. Uh, in fact, we've even changed our whole release plan so that we don't even tell people like. Five years ago, Wizards used to tell people a year in advance what products we were releasing. Now we don't do it until literally months before it comes out. Uh, part of that is uh, simply shock and awe. Um, and because we've sort of evaluated how long we can keep people's excitement. Turns out we can't keep people's excitement for a year. There are too many other distractions in the world today, too many other entertainment properties competing for people's attention. But three, four months, perfect window. Perfect window. People can remember and stay excited for three to four months about something. So, doesn't say much about us as human beings, but whatever. Uh, so be it. Uh, so, yes, vampire, classic monster. Yeah, we'll do a story with vampires. Any other classic monsters? Giants. giants. Yeah, we'll do a story with giants. Giants are, have always been classic D&D monsters. Um, hopefully we'll figure out the best story for them, the best vehicle to tell them in. Uh, giants are always tricky from a game, from a digital game perspective, because size. Um, you know, you don't want to just fight a pair of giant legs. <laughs> 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 they, had that, they had the problem with the, um, 
the Tiamat uh, fight in, in the Tyranny of Dragons story. They, you could fight Tiamat at the end of the uh, Neverwinter module that they released for Tyranny of Dragons, but they had a bugger of a time because she is so much bigger than all the other characters. Being able to see her on your laptop or whatever and not have your character be literally this big it was a major hurdle to overcome for them. Not my problem. I just had to come up with a story and said, <laughs> Tiamat, that's your villain. They're like, really? You're busting my balls here. Uh, you mentioned that... You've mentioned that uh, as part of the design team, you like to go back to older worlds and modules and grab inspiration from there, like you mentioned the Lord Soth and Strahd. Is there any particular uh, module or product you feel might be underserved that you just personally would love to go back to? I don't think any module has been underserved. Well, maybe there are adventures that have never really achieved the level of penetration of some of the, some of the oldest and greatest. Um, I have always had a hankering to go back to the A series. Uh, for those who don't know, that was the Slave Lords series. Um, but I don't really have a good story idea for that one yet. Um, I'm trying to think of another one. I think back to the old adventures of my youth, and there are so many good ones. Um, but I just don't know if they're ripe. Like, for instance, Hidden Shrine of Tamochan is a great adventure. It's sort of Aztec, Mayan. Um, but how do you base an entire four to six month story expansion around that and will that actually engage people for that length of time? It might. It might just fine. Um, in fact, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I got this one solved. Don't worry. Okay. okay. Uh, as long as you don't mind dinosaurs showing up. Uh, so here at the show, I'm, doing, I'm running a few games, sort of to jump from your question, and I think I kind of answered it, to, to your question again. Um, I'm doing two playtests here at the show. One is for a story codenamed Cloak, and one is for a story codenamed Dagger. That's because all of our stories now have codenames. Um, we do that to confuse ourselves. Um, <laughs> uh, seriously, it's, it's, it's a source of endless contention at work, but they are somewhat necessary because we, uh, we have to submit all of our story titles for trademark search. and. Trademark searching is a difficult process because there's a lot more titles out there in the world today and we often have a title that we like that gets rejected. Doesn't pass trademark for whatever reason because it was the name of a video game made in 1979 or a video game that has been already trademarked but isn't coming out until two years from now or next year. Um, and it's getting harder and harder and harder to come up with names. So until we actually have a name that is trademarked, uh, we go with code names. And we, that helps us not get attached to a name either when we find out that we can't have it, um, which has happened a couple times. Uh, but the, the cloak play test that I ran yesterday for two groups, uh, one group, these are two groups of six players, one group, they lost two party members and then ran screaming out into the night. Uh, the other group lost all but one, and then the one character took off and fled for his life to live to fight another day. So they didn't turn out so well, but I think people had fun, and they were set in, uh, they were basically, uh, I, can, I can share a certain amount of information for you. Uh, they were going up into the icy mountains to find this temple 
under a mountain that's basically become a repository of evil. Um, there was this sect of good-aligned wizards and paladins who were keeping this temple and all of the evil within it trapped there to keep the world from going, you know, crazy. Keep the world safe. Um, but that was 400, 500 years ago. What's happening there now? Well, maybe the wizards have all died off. Maybe they sort of succumbed to the evil there. Who knows? But it's, it's an interesting story, and that's a piece or a fragment of a story that is going to be important in the future. Today, I am running playtests for Dagger, and Dagger is a story in which you're going around and pillaging the ancestral mounds of barbarian tribes. Uh, so that has a slightly different feel, don't you think? <laughs> Um, it's, it feels a little bit more pulpy, and oh, you got an airship, great. Um, hey, it looks like the Acquisitions Incorporated balloon, even better. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, feels very different. So that kind of gives you a sense of story-wise how things are different. Now, by telling you that, I haven't actually given anything away about the main plots of those stories, I assure you. Um, but uh, it's tantalizing. And hopefully that's what the stories do going forward. Chris, as you know, as part of your surveys, did you ever figure out like how many groups do homebrew stuff, homebrew adventures, versus you know published stuff? And what do you what do you guys have in mind to support homebrew oriented groups? So most of our stuff, most of, a great bulk of those people who play D and D run homebrew settings. Um, but of those homebrew campaigns, over half of those homebrewers do pillage from other settings. So they, uh, they, they don't play Forgotten Realms, they don't play Eberron, they play their own world, but you can find like 15% of the world that they've created was, has hawked stuff from other worlds, or 50% of the world they've created has hawked stuff from other worlds. They're comfortable pillaging our products for ideas. Um, uh, and that, that homebrew number, I think it's, I can't remember the exact percentage, but I think it's like 55% homebrew. And then it's like 35% Forgotten Realms, and then everything else, all in one big hot mess, uh, compensates for, every, for all of the rest of it. Um, and uh, uh, very few people, turns out, right now, running Dark Sun campaigns. A sliver of a sliver. Very few people uh, running Hollow World campaigns. Very few people running Mistara campaigns. It pretty much goes Homebrew, Forgotten Realms, I think like Greyhawks at 5%, and then everybody else is like at 2 or 1%. Um, and uh, I don't remember where Dragonlance is, frankly. What's that? Birthright. Birthright. Uh, unfortunately, sliver of a sliver again. Um, yeah, uh, I used to I used to use uh, I used to use Dungeon Magazine when it was published as the as the bellwether to determine how popular a setting was. You counted the number of setting specific adventures that appeared in that magazine, and you got a pretty good sense of how many campaigns were out there, uh, which is why there were there was only one birthright adventure. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so. What are we doing for home brewers going forward? 
Well, good question. In one of the, I, this past year was a very busy year for me um, because in addition to doing story development work and in addition to doing um, helping out with our business partners and stuff, I actually did a lot of writing this year, more writing than I have ever done for Wizards of the Coast. I've written probably a total of about 666 pages of uh, material this year uh, to go in a variety of different products, most of them RPG products. Uh, two books worth, basically. Um, two adventures, specifically. Plus some other ancillary materials. And uh, certainly in the adventure I just wrote, there is a big section that talks about how to adapt to other worlds or how you pull stuff out of this for homebrew and how you strip away the labels to make it compatible with your setting. The advantage is, is that this product is so like uh, Dwellers of the Forbidden City or Against the Giants or um, the Ghost Tower of Inverness, you can literally drop it in anywhere. Anywhere. Um, the names of the places that you go to are new, which means that nobody is going to have their feathers ruffled. They're probably not even going to know that it was based in a specific world uh, if you take it and import it somewhere else. The other thing about the adventure, the stories that we're telling is they have lots of modular bits. They're almost like 10 stories within a story, which means you can break off a tenth of it and basically run that as you're in your campaign for the next two months. Um, they're, they're designed to be very homebrew friendly. Just out of curiosity, has anybody had a chance to play Sword Coast Legends yet or give it a try? Okay. Um, one of our next uh, little endeavors is to uh, try to help the N-Space guys uh, plan for content for their game going forward and coming up with story elements that will intrigue them. So I'm going to be spending the next month or two basically on Sword Coast Legends running a campaign. Um, and it's going to be open to the public. So if you want a glimpse into my sordid storytelling mind, uh, you might want to try to get in on one of these games. I don't exactly know the mechanics of how it's going to work yet. In fact, the first thing I'm supposed to do when I get back from GameholeCon is uh, sit down and talk about the logistics of how I run all these campaigns for all of these folks in the outside world. Um, but uh, we're going to try to tease a few things as well. Um, the other thing, how many of you go to the PAX events? Anyone? Have any of you seen a live game live? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those, those are great fun. We're going to be uh, teasing more of our stories in those live games as well. Uh, so you'll be, able to, you'll be able to use those to get some insights into the stories we're trying to tell. Uh, as far as working with people, this is something I forgot to mention. It's another change in how we do business at Wizards of the Coast. We never used to do this before. Um, we consult. We have a very, fifth edition was very good to us. Um, the company 
supports us wholeheartedly. They have given us large amounts of money to basically bring people from the outside who have some cachet or who are creative titans in their field, bring them in and actually have them consult with us on our stories. They help us develop the stories. The way it works is uh, we drive a dump truck of money up to their house and <laughs> we say, come with us to uh, Renton, Washington for a week and sit down for a week worth of meetings to break a story, a D&D &D story. And we don't even necessarily know that we're gonna do this in product yet. Uh, we just wanna get these people out here and pick their brains um, and see what comes out of it. Uh, one of our most successful endeavors was Pendleton Ward, the creator of Adventure Time. He came out for a week, spent a week with us in meetings and a marvelous story came out of that wacky combination of <laughs> coalition of elements uh, uh, that you'll be seeing in the not too distant future. Uh, we have, we've had other consultants as well. We have brought in, we, for instance, on Out of the Abyss, we naturally brought in Bob Salvatore. R.A. Salvatore writes the Dritz novels. Since Dritz was going to be sort of an anchor for the story, um, we brought him in to consult on that. Uh, but we are looking at consultants beyond the range, beyond the pale. Uh, people that uh, obviously love D&D, &D, but may not actually have ever worked on a D&D &D product. Or maybe they have. Who knows? If I, could, if, I could, if, if I could resurrect Gary Gygax, I would bring him in as a consultant. Um, certainly. Uh, um, but we have to stick to the living. The, uh, um, you got two what? Ah, yes, yes, yes. And uh, yes, they are uh, wonderful. Again. And Frank Menser, another brilliant creative talent. And uh, if we had hit upon this idea back when we were doing Elemental Evil, we would, have had, we would have asked Frank if he wanted to participate. Fortunately, we didn't really hit upon it until recently. So a lot of the consulting efforts that we're, exper that we're enjoying now, you won't actually see the fruits of until next year. Um, I think that... Uh, Um, what we're going to see because of that collaboration are D&D stories that are fresh, that are going to attract new people to the hobby. And I think it is incumbent on us, probably more so than any other company, it is incumbent upon Wizards of the Coast to spend some amount of its time, effort, mind space, and resources to ensuring that the role-playing hobby and the D&D enthusiast hobby, the gaming hobby, is healthy, that people are always coming in, that we have stories that are welcoming to them, that are inclusive, that are going to appeal to more than just middle America white guys, um, that, are, that are showing D&D uh, to people in a whole new light, in a way that's fresh, that's welcoming, that's uh, in keeping with the age in which we live. And uh, I don't want anybody feeling discriminated against by our D&D &D stories. 
by the products that we're releasing. I don't want anybody to feel like they can't play because of some perceived barrier, because their mother told them it was Satanist. Or I want to dispel as much of that as possible uh, through media, through the, getting people talking about our stories and saying, no, these aren't going to kill your little Johnny. They're not going to hurt your little Louise. They're not, gonna, they're not endangering anybody. These are D&D has always been safe and fun and smart and friendship-inducing. And so regardless of the stories we want to tell, myself and everybody I work with is really keeping these things in mind and trying to expand. If we think that we can expand our audience by, throwing, by doing a story about dinosaurs, we'll do stories with dinosaurs in them. Um, the story has to make sense. Uh, you won't see Strahd riding around on a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh, the Tarrasque, maybe. That would be a stretch. Um, I'm still waiting for my Tarrasque miniatures carrying case. Um, but if there is a story with it, the, there is probably a great story with the Tarrasque. An end of the world, apocalyptic story. Um, it probably isn't a story about a boy and his Tarrasque. <laughs> but, 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 because D&D is broader than just the RPG, if we ever did a Tarrasque-themed story, I would probably want to do a stuffed Tarrasque, and I wouldn't mind getting into business with like Penguin Books and have them do a children's story about a boy and his Tarrasque. <laughs> I think I'll call him Stampy. <laughs> uh, yeah. But the wonderful thing about taking this story-driven approach to D&D is it opens up the whole sky. It just opens up the imagination. Like if I said you are all members of my story team for the day, um, story time. What's, what D&D story would we want to tell? Vegapygmies. Where do these Vegapygmies came from? They came from Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, a classic adventure by Gary Gygax, module S1, which was mind-blowing in the day because it was D&D with laser guns. Um, even as a 12-year-old boy, I knew there was something inherently wrong <laughs> about that entire concept. But it had Gary's name on it. You know, I think, I think in my mind, if it had any other name on it, I would have dismissed it. As, oh my god, this is such garbage. Aren't laser guns and fantasy role-playing games? But it had Gary's name on it, so it's like, oh, Gary says it's okay, let's give it a try. Jesus Christ, they're walking tiny plant people. Um, yeah, fetch your pygmies. So, they're plant people. Where do they come from? Are they native to the world? Or did they come from some other world? If they came from some other world, maybe they're like pod people or something like that, and they're carrying some you know, spores or whatever. They got their little dogs that are thornies. Um, they kind of look like dogs. Uh, what do we do with Vegapygmies? Is there a story there? What would you do with Vegapygmies? Yeah. Um, there's things that have been introduced since Expedition to the Barrier Peaks that have added more space elements, like the whole Spelljammer campaign setting. Um, which I don't dismiss because I ran a Spelljammer campaign for five years. Um, uh, but could you 
fuse those in some way. So now you've got plants in space, <laughs> or maybe the veg pygmies come on a ship and it crashes in the middle of a city, and all the veg pygmies get out, and you know, all of people make Christmas trees out of them. <laughs> That's where the story begins to fall apart. Um, <laughs> But if you, if you pick Vegapygmy as a serious monster that you want to entertain in a story, people are automatically going to look at it and say, it's a dumb little plant creature. So you can either fight against that and try to go dark with them, paint, paint them in a sinister light, uh, cre like creeping vines, kind of twig blighty kind of creatures skulking around in the night, stealing children or little you know, people. Or you go the other way and whimsical, crazy, fun, yeah, they're plant creatures, and yeah, they got albedo screens, and uh, yeah, they're throwing stun grenades. Uh, which way would you go? Raise your hands if you would go with dark, ominous plant people. Raise your hand if you would go with grenade-throwing people. Okay, we're, we're about equally split. You could. It could, but then... But then anybody coming to that story is instantly feeling like they're being pulled in two moods. It's like putting clowns in a Call of Cthulhu story. Um, you're, you're, all I'm saying is you're riding a line there. And depending on your DM, it can go either way. It can go into total silly, you know, killer clowns from outer space kind of stuff. Or it could, it could actually work. If you know tentacles are bursting out through their mouths and things, and um, so my point is that when we sit down to do a story, if we decide that we're going to marry that story to a creature, we have to think about what the mood of the story is and which way we're going to go and how easy is it, how many people we think we're going to pull in that direction. Are we going to be able to make Vegapygmies scary? Yeah, we sure could. Uh, if we go silly, how far do we go um, before we start to get a little too ridiculous? Because there's um, Dungeon Land, which is a beautiful adaptation by Gary Gygax of an Alice in Wonderland story, almost a literal adaptation. And then you've got um, Castle Greyhawk, WG7 where you're running around in a jumbo jet killing bee people, or giant bees, and you're on Morden Kanan's magnificent movie set, um, which is like borderline ludicrous. Um, whereas Dungeonland actually immersed you in the world of, the, of Alice in Wonderland, and you felt kind of scared when the Queen of Hearts showed up, you never really feel like you're in a regular D&D game with Castle Greyhawk because you're on a movie set. Um, or you're running around in a jumbo jet. Uh, uh, there's a line to walk there. And as storytellers, the success of your story hinges on whether or not you can carry your audience to the end. And uh, one of the other things I want to mention about our stories going forward is Tyranny of Dragons, uh, the TRPG products that were released for it, took you from levels 1 to 15. Elemental Evil, same, 1 to 15. Out of the Abyss, our Rage of Demons adventure, 1 to 15. Um, we're going to be changing up that model in the future. 
So uh, you may see future stories that are strictly low level. You may see some that are sort of set in the middle. You may see some that are set at strictly high level. Or you may see a story that can be told at level 3, level 10, and level 15. Uh, we're going to change that up for a couple reasons. One, we don't want to be boring and predictable. Uh, two, we've discovered that even when we give people four to six months to play an adventure, they won't necessarily get to the end. Tyranny of Dragons, uh, most games did not make it to the end. Elemental Evil, most games did not make it to the very end. Uh, Out of the Abyss remains to be seen. Uh, so uh, for the next one, we're going a little shorter. And for the one after that, we're going a little shorter still. That doesn't mean the products are necessarily getting tremendously shorter. It just means that, for instance, one of the upcoming products that we're doing is enormously replayable. It's a short adventure, but you can play it 200 times and never have the same adventure twice. Yeah. Uh, so totally different model. Um, and I think people are going to get a kick out of it, which means in the course of that six months, maybe they'll pay it twice. Maybe they'll play it three times. I don't know. Um, but they'll have lots of time to finish it, which means that the players are actually going to see the end of the story. <laughs> a long campaign with a real slow progression built into it so you can... We have talked about that too, the idea of the long, slow campaign. So you might start at first level, and then six months later, you might only be fifth level or whatever. Um, yeah, that we can... We definitely would, would like to experiment with that. I think uh, a lot of people like that because lower level play for a number of people is inherently more fun. Um, it's easier on the DM generally, and uh, it's a bit scarier, a bit more manageable, uh, particularly for, shall we say, less invested players. Um, they don't have to become quite the high level rules masters. They don't have to deal with a lot of, the DM doesn't have to deal with a lot of the high-end problems of characters teleporting out of the dungeon to get healed up, teleporting back in, you know, that kind of thing, that kind of business. It will, whether or not we actually pull it off, will depend on the story it's married to. Yeah, because you don't want it to feel artificial, and you don't want the players to be like, oh my god, why haven't we leveled up yet? You have to be able to hide that or disguise that or let the story convince them that this is the right progression, um, that it feels right for the story you're trying to tell. So if you wanted a long drawn out, say maybe it's only levels one to three or levels one to four or five or something like that campaign, where you're never going to become seriously high level, but you're going to have a wonderful story to tell and it's going to last a good long time. What sort of story might that be? It could be. It could be all about politics. And so you only advance in levels when certain milestones are hit or something has happened to change the situation. Um, intrigue stories are tough because there's always somebody in the party who wants to play the barbarian and just kill everything. Um, you can't go to the masquerade ball with that guy. He's, <laughs> it's not going to end well. And you're never going to find out who the killer is. Um, it's the barbarian. <laughs> uh, but political intrigue stories are, 
are a hallmark of my own campaigns. When I run home campaigns, they are almost always political intrigue stories these days because I have, uh, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a fairly sophisticated DM and I love politics, love politics. Um, political machinations and not knowing who is the good guy and who is the bad guy and, and baiting the characters into thinking one is the villain and then getting them to actually work with that villain. Um, that sort of, uh, and then the political turmoil of kingdoms at war and um, maybe not solving the war through violence, but through political machinations and taking out that person over there or meeting in the darkness with this person, hatching a deal with this ambassador, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff is wonderful. Uh, the trick to that story is the barbarian. D&D <laughs> &D tries not to exclude so how does one build a story of intrigue that allows the barbarian periodically the opportunity to go nuts and murder everybody in the room? Yes, yes. So what you do is you tell an intrigue story and then maybe you overlap something else happening at the same time. A lot of the stories that I tell my home campaign have three arcs. And the whole purpose of having three arcs on the story, if you think of it as like a triangle with three sides, every side is a basically a path that the characters can follow along. Um, if they get tired of one, they can just jump to another one. One of those might be the political intrigue story. One of them might be, there are orcs in the hills and they gotta be killed before they you know, rampage. And then the other can be something flavored differently and you can just have clues and things that shift you from one story to the next. You can do an intrigue story that way by giving them tangents to go off on where they can indulge their violent predilections then come back to the business of dealing with the kingdom in disarray, that kind of thing. The kingdom is in disarray. This ambassador who represents this evil kingdom will actually help you navigate the mires and political morasses. He will help you, but he has a problem over here. Go kill that problem, and suddenly you've got a political ally. That's a good way to do a political story where the barbarian feels happy because he's going off and killing the vampire who's, you know, killing everybody in the evil kingdom, that kind of thing. So you can play that. And so that might be a story we can pursue in the future. Um, one story idea I had was sort of a, uh, a city-based story uh, around a gang war, where that's basically just the backdrop. It's like there's this gang war that's causing all this chaos in the city, all this other chaos. And the characters are kind of, they, they don't know about the gang war at first. That only comes later. They're dealing with all the chaos that's erupted around there, and only later do they realize, oh, this is the actual source of the problem. We gotta deal with this. And then you realize it's not just a gang war. Somebody is manipulating one of the gangs and is actually a, a darker force, um, a much more powerful force, and what do they want? So there's a lot of intrigue there too, where you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and you realize, oh, he's not the enemy, she is. Kill her, she's not the enemy, that is. You know, it, you just, it just leads you deeper and deeper and deeper. That idea of getting, of literally crawling into the heart of the city to kill the rotten core of it is an interesting idea to me and I have absolutely no idea how to do it. Um, and, make, and make it so that any DM, anyone in this room could run it the way it needs to be run. That's the hard part about dungeons are easy. Go left, go right, go straight. A city, terrifying for a dungeon master. 
we want to sit in the tavern and get drunk all day. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, a troll shows up. <laughs> He's wearing a hat and a cloak. And, yeah. Sorry, I'm talking too much. Any other questions? Sorry, right there? Oh, right there with the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, just real quick. You released the first non-specifically story-based book in Sword Coast Adventures Guide. Like, it's not a story in and of itself. We did. So I'm curious if everything, because it is story-driven from this point forward, will we see more books akin to that will be about the world of which the story is based in, or you know, especially if you do another Forgotten Realms story, it'll all of a sudden be in Chult, or it'll be in Thay, or... You know, Dale Lins and or so on and so forth. Uh, Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide is, um, like you say, it was designed to give people a bit more information about Forgotten Realms because we had told a number of stories there. Uh, this was born out of feedback. We got a lot of feedback from folks saying they wanted, they didn't know much about the Forgotten Realms. They wanted to know enough about the Forgotten Realms to run adventures, but they didn't want to know too much about the Forgotten Realms to feel like they couldn't run adventures. And that's been a big problem with the Forgotten Realms in the past to some DMs and some players. There's just so much history, so much lore, so much canon to wrap your brain around. It can be daunting. So the trick there was to try to distill it down and to make it manageable. Um, time will tell if it succeeded. We don't have any feedback yet to know. We don't, have any, we don't know sales yet. We haven't got much feedback of substance um, because people are still <laughs> digesting the material and playing with the character options. The character options bit in there was just to acknowledge that there are wacky things in the Forgotten Realms that are fairly prominent, like half-drow. So if you're going to play a Forgotten Realms campaign, here's some information about half-drow. Probably don't need it if you're running Eberron, but whatever. Um, so will we do more of that in the future? Yeah, I think that in part, part of our goal is to surprise and delight. To, if all we did were big adventure books, that wouldn't be surprising. So the question is, what is the next way, what is the next Sword Coast Adventures Guide? Who knows? I don't know. Um, it's a combination of what do we think people are asking for, what do, they, what do we think they actually need, and is it different enough to kind of stand on its own merit? Because like you say, it's not specifically story focused. Um, it's world-focused. But let's say we did a, um, a Greyhawk adventure. Greyhawk has been out of circulation now for how many years? Good answer. Um, although you can still... There's, there's certainly nothing stopping you from running a Greyhawk campaign because everything that's out there is still out there and it's still timely. And it remains, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's an open question of whether or not we would even change the timeline. I mean, Greyhawk's current timeline is perfectly cromulent. Um, so is its original timeline. Uh, um, the question then becomes, do you, is it a better user experience to put all of the information you need to know about Greyhawk in the adventure product because it's really for the DM's information? Or is it better um, and is going to be better received if that information is parceled, divorced from the adventure? 
as a separate thing that you have to buy, that you have to spend money on now. Does it, and is, is what we're actually putting in that product so awesome that people are willing to spend the 30 to $50 that that book is going to cost? All of these questions have to be answered before we commit to whether or not we will do one or the other, or none. Um, if we were to go back to Greyhawk, say, in a future story, how would we go back? Would we go back to the original World of Greyhawk Gazetteer, that timeline, pre, you know, the pre from the ashes, pre Greybox, Greyhawk Wars? Would we go to the present timeline, which is after the Greyhawk Wars, or would we go to a future timeline? I do not have the answer to any of these questions because that will largely be determined by the community. We'd have to do some uh, exploration, market research, online surveys, web surveys to get to the heart of that question because I don't know how many people like the original timeline better than the current timeline. Just out of curiosity, who likes the original timeline better than the current timeline? Who likes the current timeline better than the original? Who has no clue what Greyhawk is? <laughs> um, the other challenge we face uh, with Greyhawk, um, speaking honestly, is that it is it is D and D at its most core. The problem is, if I were to say that to um, somebody in an elevator, they would go, I have no idea what you mean. What the hell do you mean Greyhawk is like D&D at its core? What is core D&D? Oh, it's monsters and magic and wizards. Well, you just described the Hobbit. You just described Dragonlands. You just described Forgotten Realms. What makes Greyhawk Greyhawk? Is it Gary? What else about Greyhawk makes Greyhawk Greyhawk? <laughs> Is it low magic? Because you have, you have Morden Kanan. He is not low magic. Yeah? So, so basically it's like magic is more exclusive in Greyhawk. Right. Unless you go to the Valley of the Magi. <laughs> where it's not. Um, it's got barbarians. A whole lot of, look at the Greyhawk map, there's a whole lot of barbarian territory up there. We don't know a whole lot about them other than they're tigers and they're, um, uh, uh, we've got uh, Scarlet Brotherhood, which are Aryan, monastic, uh, want to control the world type, um, pulpy organization. Um, Somebody at work, I can't remember who it was, whether it was Mike Merles or somebody else, described Greyhawk as almost Fafford in the Grey Mouser-esque. Uh, Fritz Leiber, Lankmar-esque. That would certainly make sense based on things I'd heard about what Greyhawk was like when Gary was running it. it sort of felt, maybe felt that way. Um, certainly Fritz Leiber was a friend of Gary's and the, fam the Gygax family. 
and uh, much, and Gary loved his works, according to Empire of Imagination. Um, have, how many of you read Empire of Imagination, by the way? Uh, the, the book released recently, it's on Amazon. Empire of Imagination is the story of Gary Gygax. If you don't know anything about the creator of D&D, read the book. Michael, yeah, and if you haven't met the, the author, Michael Whitwer, he's actually at the show. I think another interesting thing about Greyhawk as the setting, as the world, it, you know, one aspect of it is you have a kingdom ruled by an evil demigod. So yes. that's something. Yes, that is something. Now, you just hit upon something that me as a story creator instantly latches onto, and that is you found something unique about this world that other campaign settings really can't boast, at least not to the extent this one. Grey Greyhawk has Ayus. Ayus is this half-demon tyrant. Who's, yes. And it, it has these very strong, these strong kingdoms. Forgotten Realms doesn't. There are only a scattering of real kingdoms in the Forgotten Realms area. There's Cormir, that's the biggest one. There's a few other small ones, like Hartsvale, and there's, they're scattered around. There are kingdoms all over Greyhawk. Um, and, and the tyrant kingdom is certainly a big thing on Greyhawk, and I could instantly see stories there. We might, in a future Greyhawk product or, or story, if we did a story about Greyhawk, one of the things I'd be sorely tempted to do is focus on Ayus. Say, I'm not going to give you the Greyhawk campaign setting. I'm going to tell you a story about Ayus and all of the shit that he's doing right now and all of the repercussions that are happening because of that, everything that's sort of swirling around this maelstrom of Ayus, what's happening around him, what's happening in Furyandi, what's happening in Ernst, what's happening you know, in the city of Greyhawk itself. And I'm going to focus on these locations and these characters and these figures, and it's all going to tie into Ayus. Ayus is going to be the glue that holds this story together. And if something has nothing to do with Ayus, it is not going to be in the story and it is not going to be in the product. Boom. Out. If you want to know more about the Great Kingdom, go pick up the old source book on dndclassics.com as a PDF and read about the Great Kingdom because we're talking about Ayus and he's doing something really bad and these kingdoms are going to come at him and what are we going to do? Are we going to have a war? Is it going to be a war story? Are we going to have battlefields? Are our characters going to be field marshals? Is it going to be like the, you know, the Battle of Emberty Meadows all over again but fought against Ayus? Ah, so much cool stuff to do. Now it's starting to feel like its own thing. Now it's starting to feel like something that doesn't feel like Dragonlance and doesn't feel like Forgotten Realms, but still could be imported into your home campaign. Marvelous story opportunities there. <laughs> Sorry, getting a little excited here. <laughs> Taking notes. <laughs> um, this is how stories happen. This is how they happen in our office. They happen just with conversations about what exists in D&D, &D, what doesn't exist in D&D &D and should, and how do we bring these things together. I thought it would be cool to do like a choose-your-own-adventure style uh, book where not even the DM know how, knows how it's going to end up, depending upon the quest line that, that the players follow, it could have three different endings. 
So oh, interesting. Like so there, there's like a random element. Yeah. Um, that the that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And do more side tracks maybe in in, mm-hmm. in the adventures. So then yep. if you have a don't have quite your full group, you have stuff that could be suggestions that they could do with a smaller group. Like, yeah. So you yeah. have four people and you only have two that can show up that night. That's interesting too. The idea of building a story that has like uh, little break-off elements that you can do with smaller groups yeah. is interesting. Or like a solo night's play, if you've got just you and your little brother or little sister or whatever, and you want to run a game, um, that's really intriguing. And you can do that within the greater context of the story. But also the idea that at various points in the adventure, there would basically be choice points, and when the players went on that track. That's the track that the adventure went on. Yeah. And suddenly the other ones get closed off. Yeah, exactly. And so the DM is like, oh, my God. Well, <laughs> and you just yeah. described every D&D campaign I've ever run. <laughs> <laughs> because my players, they will find the track where they shouldn't go. They will find the thing. They will fixate on something that I didn't think would be terribly important. And they will go off in search of that. <laughs> and suddenly this work that I did will just fall by the wayside. And I'll be lucky to ever get them back there. But having, a, having that built into the structure of the adventure is an interesting it's, idea. Yeah. And a bit of a design challenge. And, well, and I also want to say thank you. You gave me the tools with 5th edition to... I have a 19-year-old daughter. Um, we were able to take her out of being behind the computer playing WoW and at the table with her and her boyfriend and my, my, cousin, uh, my cousin's son, who is 20, and get them all together and... Um, just the look on their faces when they mm-hmm. realized where rolling up a character came from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the idea that they can actually climb over that fence. Yeah. <laughs> They're not stuck against the fence. Yeah. It was like an epiphany for them, though. Yeah. They're like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. I can do anything. Yeah. Yeah. That should be our tagline for D&D. D&D, I can do anything? Question mark. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Hey, um, I'm really curious because you talked a little bit about the three campaigns that have come out so far, and um, I'm curious if in the office you and your coworkers talk a lot about the Forgotten Realms world and whether those campaigns have affected the Forgotten Realms world because people may or may not have run them, so Tiamat may or may not have come, and you know all these different things. But do you ever talk about the the world as a Constant. Sort of an ongoing, as ongoing. a continuum. Yeah, yeah, and whether yeah, and, we do. and you know, are you going to wrap it up or not, and that kind of thing. This is uh, this is tricky um, because the timing is crucial. So yeah, tyranny of dragons happened, elemental evil happened, out of the abyss happened. They're actually not sequential. Um, if you if you look at the timelines very carefully, out of the abyss happens kind of overlaps with the other two, um, and actually has nods in it um, to the other two. Uh, I'm, this is actually a good question, um, and I'm glad you brought it up. Yes, we are looking at a continuum, and yes, we would like to deal with the consequences of those stories in future stories. Um, and we are, actually. So uh, in, in one upcoming story, we... Um, we do deal with the fallout of one of the other stories. And some of that is based on uh, survey data and our understanding of how those stories actually sort of ended up. 
So did Tiamat die in most of the in most of the uh, Rise of Tiamat adventures? Well, we did we we did a survey, and uh, no, no, she didn't. In fact, more often than not, the party got crushed at the end. <laughs> uh, so what does that mean for the world? Um, dealing with that kind of repercussion is fun, but we don't want to jump on that too soon because people are still playing it. Um, and we want to make sure it's actually going to be effective and powerful and right. We, just want to, we don't want to say, and Tiamat survived, and everybody who played the adventure, what tough shit, you know. Um, <laughs> she's alive. Uh, but one of, the, one of the challenges and one of the things we're doing with stories is hooking them into stories past and present. So it feels more like a tapestry in the world of the Forgotten Realms. If it's a realm-based story, any future realm-based stories that we do will hopefully have echoes. One of the best meetings I had earlier this year um, was in a conference room where we sat down and we wrote a bunch of names of Forgotten Realms villains, monsters, NPCs, stuff like that, and what they're sort of doing in the world at this time and how they all are re-impacted by the events that have happened and what they might try to do in the future based on the success or failure of earlier stories. Um, the extent to which we get to explore that remains to be seen. I don't know. To some extent, it's not important because if you're running out of the abyss in your home campaign, you don't give a shit about whether or not... If Demogorgon dies in the adventure, he's dead in your campaign. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what the official FR says. It matters not in the least. Because the only thing that's important to your players is the campaign that they played. That is canon to them. And is canon to you, probably, if you, as a DM, value that campaign that you created. So what happens in the official narrative doesn't necessarily have merit. So it's one of those things like we care about it and we don't care about it. Because we know DMs are going to use it in their own way, in their own campaigns, for the most part. Now, if you run it as an official FR adventure in the official FR world, set in the official FR timing, and you really want to marry all the canon together, then yeah, we would like to help you out and say, okay, Tiamat's still alive. Good luck with that. <laughs> she's still in the Well of Dragons. Now, maybe she's surrounded by metallic dragons, so she's not going to go out anywhere anytime soon, but um, she's still there and a present force in the universe. Uh, but what does that actually mean for the world? We have to figure that out internally. And we're, we're dealing with it a story at a time. So if the events of Elemental Evil, for instance, impact a future story, we'll tell you. Um, if in a future story you run into an evil dragon who fought in the, in the Tyranny of Dragons story, that dragon story has changed, and he's learned something from that experience. He's different now. And so when you face him, and you will... Uh, <laughs> In Dagger, uh, <laughs> uh, in Dagger, uh, you will meet one of the dragons who was part of the coalition in Tyranny of Dragons. Um, his his mindset has somewhat changed by that experience, uh, and his actions will surprise you. Well, not now. <laughs> oh no, they will surprise you. They will definitely surprise you. I guarantee it. Uh, we've, we've, got, we've, got a, we've got a misbehaving dragon, and uh, he's a lot of fun. Uh, so, 
We are a few minutes, like two minutes away from the 3.30 mark, just so you know. Um, next question. Uh, hi, Chris. Uh, this is actually my first convention. I'd like to first off say thank you so much. Uh, my question is actually in your homebrew campaigns, um, when you're playing, if just as an example for detail, if someone said they were using the spell Aquatic Escape, uh, would you go and say, okay, well, you succeed, you become a fish and you can escape, or upon trying to learn the spell, would you ask like saltwater fish, freshwater fish, what kind of fish? <laughs> How far into detail do you I'm glad you described it, because I had no go. idea. <laughs> That, that was the absolute question. Absolute question. I said so I'd ask. So that's a great question. To, the, to what extent do I invest my time and my players' time in, in certain details? Um, it sort of depends on my mood. Uh, it sort of depends if I need to buy time <laughs> in a situation. I'll do it. But by and large, my default is no. I'm, I'm usually pretty, qu pretty quick with something like that. Uh, and I'll just say you transform into a, you transform into a fish. I might say carp or a you know trout or something. You transform into a fish and you squirm away, blah blah blah, and then move on. Um, unless, unless I know that that player is looking for something more. If that player is looking for something a little bit more descriptive to get excited about, like if it's my nine-year-old niece um, and she she wants to know that it's a sparkly goldfish. Uh, that she turns into, I will describe it that way because I know she'll like it. Because I know her well enough as a player. Um, uh, but by and large, for my regular gaming group at home, no, they don't want to know what kind of fish, or if it's salt water or fresh water, and frankly, uh, they don't care. Um, they would, and uh, I'm not persnickety about those kinds of details. Usually because my mind is too occupied with trying to stay 10 minutes ahead of them. <laughs> So I'm, I'm, while I'm talking about their fish, I'm thinking about the thing that's going to pop out 10 minutes from now, and so I'm trying to get past the fish as quickly as possible so I don't forget that thing, because I'm, you know, old. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so have you guys considered doing smaller, looser stories? Um, I mean, Dracula does say is not smaller, neither is Gardmore Abbey or Ravenloft, but they had switches allowed them to be different or looser, you know, it yes. wasn't always the same-ish? Cloak. The next story is exactly that. Yep. Nope, you described, you've identified something that we've identified as something that we need to do. So we did it. And we'll do it again if it's successful. It's up to you how many more questions you want to take first. I'll take one more question. Anyone? It'll, it'll hopefully be a brief one. I'm just kind of wondering if, um, with the focus being less releases of more impact, uh, do you find that with the presence of social media, you have a lot more um, interaction with like the unearthed arcana posts or things along those lines? Do you yes. find online you get a lot more yes. give and take? Yes. We get a lot more because uh, we're not putting... We're not throwing a thousand balls into a room and having people describe each ball. We're throwing one big ball 
into the room and they're all going, oh my God, that's such a big ball. Look at the size of that ball. That ball is so big. That ball is so big, I don't even think it'll fit through the door. I wonder if there's a way we can deflate that ball so we can fit it through the door. I don't even think we should deflate that ball because I'm not sure we can get the ball back to its normal shape again. Like they're talking about that one thing and they will do it endlessly and they will find all kinds of things to talk about about that product. Uh, so yeah, it is absolutely trend. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's social media effect has been obvious um, and very beneficial. Uh, and uh, so that has helped us. Uh, that doesn't mean that there, we don't get bombarded on social media with people talking about things that were created five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. There's so much D&D product out there right now. Um, keeping track of it all in my head is becoming impossible. Uh, and uh, um, making sure that we are putting out stuff that inspires people to create their own stories is going to be an ongoing thing that we continually think about. Um, so any time that we can put in an adventure an opportunity to break off, give a DM an idea that they can then take and do their own thing, um, we do. Uh, like for instance, uh, in Out of the Abyss, we didn't put it in the adventure, but we really liked the idea of this lithid, this mind flayer, who runs an insane asylum in the Underdark because he's discovered that the brains of insane people are tastier than the brains of sane people. So he, he traps them, drives them insane so that he can sell them to his illithid buddies as delicacies. Um, but, and then he also sends out his thralls to catch more people, sane people, to bring them to the asylum and trap them in. And he's got intellect devourers that he sends out that crawl into the heads of people to use them as puppets to attract more people to bring to the asylum. So he's got this whole, whole delicatessen uh, uh, asylum thing. Did not have space for it, but we put it in the appendix of the adventure, literally just describing what I just told you, knowing that some DM is going to go, oh my god, yes, yes, this is going to be my campaign for the next six months. Um, and just putting more of that material out there to feed campaigns. So I'm waiting for the social media tweet about the party who runs into Zelix and his insane asylum. I'm waiting for it. I know it'll happen. It's going to happen in the next six months, the next four to six months. I'm waiting for it. It's going to happen. And when it does, I'm going to be like... Because <laughs> it was like this much space in a book that we devoted to it. Ah, yes. Yes. That, that's an idea that was actually introduced in um, the Alithiad, the second edition book on mind flayers. It's, it's, it's called, I can't remember the exact name, but it's basically um, spectator eating. Uh, it's a spectator, it's like a spectator sport. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a brilliant idea. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, so, with, uh, with that on your brain, <laughs> we'll call it a day. <laughs> <laughs>